afternoon and welcome to the 86th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I talk about COVID-19 in the UK with Jose Torero. You can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube Live. Just go to the COVID calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, July 20th, 2020, there are 14,604,077 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 13,885,746 cases reported Friday. Of those, 3,804,907 are in the United States. That's up from 3,604,408 reported on Friday. There are now a total of 140,811 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 138,649 reported on Friday. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19. 19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline, Coronavirus Exerts Heavy Toll on Filipino Community in UK, this appeared in The Guardian in April, April 17. Many from the Philippines or with Filipino heritage, including a Grenfell Tower fire survivor, have died from COVID-19 as the pandemic exerts a heavy toll on a community that helps form the backbone to Britain's healthcare sector. Some 18 of those who lost their lives worked in the health sector as of mid-April, reporting in mid-April, in roles including NHS nurses and porters, healthcare assistants, and care home staff. A number of others are critically ill, were critically ill or in intensive care at that time. Among members of the Filipino community to have died is Virgilio Larry Castro, age 63, who survived the Grenfell Tower fire less than three years ago. He died on 9th of April. Castro, who had worked as a maintenance supervisor and at a bar, initially tried to fight the blaze and escaped in shorts and a t-shirt. He told the inquiry that he often thought about it and had suffered breathing problems since. In evidence to the inquiry into the fire in which 72 people died, Castro told how he had lost many people he knew. The Grenfell Tower fire is such a tragedy, it shouldn't have been allowed to happen, and I want the public inquiry to ensure it can never happen again, said Castro. Castro lived with his family on the 17th floor of the 24-story tower for 26 years. He and his wife, who died a decade ago, moved into the tower in April 1991, just after their daughter was born. I watched my daughter grow up in that flat and have many fond memories of living there as a family, he told the inquiry. He said that he had cried at a CCTV image provided by police of him leaving the tower in only a white t-shirt and yellow shorts. I still find it difficult to look at that photograph, he said. Echoing concern elsewhere, there's anger that Filipino workers were among those bearing the brunt of a shortage of personal protective equipment, PPE, for healthcare workers in the COVID-19 pandemic. There are about 200,000 Filipinos in the UK and 18,500 of them in the NHS, according to House of Commons library data from 2019, making them the most numerous nationality working in the health service after Britons and Indians. It is breaking our hearts because we're talking about friends, family, and close colleagues, said Emily Barameda of United Filipino Global, an organization which represents Filipino overseas workers. Like so many others, we don't know what is happening, and it's hard in some cases not to believe that there is also some discrimination. In some hospitals where there is a British person who is positive with COVID-19 and a Filipino one, it seems that they will choose to prioritize the British one. Other Filipinos who have died include John Alagos, 23, who became the third UK nurse to die after caring for coronavirus patients, and is believed to have become the youngest British medic to succumb to the virus. 
His mother, Gina Gustillo, has spoken of how her son fell ill at Watford General Hospital after a 12-hour shift. Other victims included Oscar King Jr. and Albert Rico, two porters at Oxford's John Ratcliffe Hospital. King Jr., who was described as a devoted father to his 10-year-old daughter, died in April, an hour after being brought to hospital after isolating at home with symptoms consistent with the virus. The partner of Leilani Medell, 41, a nurse in Bridgend, South Wales, South Wales, who died on 10th of April, was treated after being brought to hospital with severe symptoms of the virus. Medell had worked in care homes and hospitals for more than 10 years. Filipino health workers have served tirelessly and courageously at the front lines of the war against this pandemic, and their contribution to the ongoing effort to save lives is nothing but immense. I'd like to turn to the conversation today and introduce my guest, who uh, I'm thrilled to have him on. He's a friend of mine and is also a genius, and I'm excited to talk to him always. Uh, professor Jose L. Torero is Professor of Civil Engineering and Head of the Department of Civil, Environmental, and Geomatic Engineering at University College London. He works in the fields of fire safety, combustion, environmental remediation, and sanitation where he specializes in complex environments, such as developing nations, complex urban environments, novel architectures, critical infrastructure, aircraft, and spacecraft. Jose is a chartered engineer in the UK, a registered professional engineer in Queensland, a fellow of the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering, the Royal Academy of Engineering in the UK, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, UK, the Queensland Academy of Arts and Sciences, among many other honors and privileges. He has been part of the World Trade Center Collapse Investigation, the Organization of American States Human Rights Investigation of Ayotzinapa in Mexico. He's part of the Chilean investigation of the San Miguel prison fire, and currently he's serving in the Grenfell Public Inquiry in the UK. And uh, he and I are co-authors, uh, and you can check out our new article, which was just published this spring, in a tremendous edited volume edited by Amy Slayton called New Materials Towards a History of Consistency out with Lever Press. We wrote an article about tall timber construction, the so-called timber skyscraper. Jose, great to see you. Welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you very much. Great to see you too and uh, delighted to be here. I want to remind people you can get your questions in and you just put them right into the YouTube live chat and we'll get to them or you can put them up on Twitter or email me directly if you like sgk23 at drexel.edu. So I'm going to start the way I've been starting all of these. Uh, Jose, first of all, thanking you for staying up late for this conversation and uh, really appreciate that on your part. Could you give us a sense of where you're calling in from and what the COVID-19 situation is there right now? Okay, so uh, I'm calling in from Brixton in the south of London, and um, uh, what has been the COVID situation here in the United Kingdom, I think in many ways, probably similar to most of the people listening to this, uh, our lives have been deeply disrupted, and uh, we've learned to operate in a completely different way. And uh, and basically try to fulfill as many of our activities as possible, and try to uh, be as responsible as we can in support of those you know who are in the front line, and um, you know dealing with uh, with this particular situation. But um, I think as, as as most people, uh, it's been a few months of uh, significant struggle. And, uh, you know, with great hopes that at some point, you know, we are going to, um, you know, go back to a situation that is more comfortable and, um, and that we're going to be able to recover in, a, in an appropriate manner. What's the trend on infection rates there in London right now? Uh, well, um, so after, after the very strict lockdown, um, numbers have been decaying quite significantly, and um, and a number of decisions have been made in the last few weeks to start releasing progressively uh, the lockdown, uh, with the most significant about a week ago. 
and uh, where many of our public activities have been resumed in one way or another. So there's a slight uh, second bump of the uh, of the number of infections, but uh, but so far uh, remaining very very much within the bounds uh, of a controllable uh, increase. So so. I think things are being monitored quite carefully. Uh, there's been several places where uh, new lockdown measures have been implemented, you know, because numbers were increasing too rapidly. But I think in general, uh, there is uh, there is a feeling that things uh, are within the bounds of manageable. And nationally, are there different pockets and hotspots. I mean, London has taken its own its own pathway and been aggressive, as you said, with lockdown. Are there other parts of the country that are not pursuing it in that way? You know, in the United States, as you probably know, 50 states, 50 different pandemics, 50 different approaches, pretty much. Is it similar to that in the UK, or have they really rolled out a national strategy by now? Well, I mean, the United Kingdom has had a national strategy. Nevertheless, uh, many of the measures have been devolved you know, to the to the four nations, so Scotland, Ireland, and um, and Wales uh, have had uh, slightly different approaches. Uh, in most of the cases, have been generally more conservative than England, but nevertheless, not too distant from what has been happening in England. So you can see a certain level of consistency. And while there has been mild differences, uh, it, it has not been like the in the in the U.S. where um, I I believe from talking to people in the U.S. people have a perception that every state is operating under their own rules. I think here we've had a very um, clear set of rules that apply to the country with slight variances that have been applied in the in in the four developed nations. Let me ask you um, a little bit about social protest. You know, in the midst of this pandemic, we've also had this certainly in the United States, and I saw from the news in the, in the UK as well, significant protest and anti-racism action as a result, result of the George Floyd murder in the United States. In, in, any of that still ongoing in, in London? I, I know you're not supposed to be out and about necessarily, but, you know, some of those images I saw of action was pretty pretty impressive are you seeing anything now uh well i mean i think that uh that uh, as, as you said uh there was a clear reaction uh here in the united kingdom and that clear reaction was very much aligned with um feelings that were expressed in the united states and i think obviously the united kingdom has its own uh history uh when it comes to to racism and uh and and so forth and uh a history that probably has not been you know fully internalized or digested so this type of situations you know tend to remind us that there's a lot of work you know to be done and um and the protests are just sort of a manifestation of that recognition that uh that that there's there's significant work to be done now one of the the important things I think is that that, that you know people have been uh, keen you know to express their solidarity you know and to manifest in favor of uh, equality and diversity and um, uh, nevertheless that in conjunction you know with the pandemic uh, has resulted in a situation that probably um, it was not necessarily um, ideal. Uh, I think that um, uh, what tends to happen in this type of situations is that um, you know the good feelings many times tend to be diluted, you know, by the fact that we don't have the capacity to gather, we don't have the capacity, you know, to you know think, uh, you know, as a, as a society, as an ensemble, and um, and and I think many times lonely voices that um that you know generally will be overruled by a majority that actually believes in equality and diversity you know tend to have a uh you know a, a sound level that is a little bit too high so i think i i think that in general you will find that that there's still something going on 
you know, there is still, um, uh, you know, a feeling that that we need, you know, to insist on this matter, you know, but but it's not clear, you know, how we organize ourselves in a situation like the one that we have right now. So you're an engineer who focuses in many different areas and, and forensics and investigation is one of your real specializations, but I, I, you're not an epidemiologist, so I know you like to stay in your, your professional lane, but I, I want to ask you, I mean, just so you could share with us what you know, what was Boris Johnson or those who advise him, what were they thinking? in February, March, what was the approach? It, these conversations are being had in the United States as well. And I can tell you it's, it, it will take us, I'm sure years to investigate if we can ever fully understand what the thinking of the government was in those two critical months. Are you com- comfortable saying what you, you think was in the mind of the leaders at that time in the UK? Mm-hmm. Look, I mean, I think that, that it, 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 is an, it is an interesting situation. I mean, I've had the opportunity to interact, you know, with some of the, the main uh, scientific advisors, you know, to, to, to Boris Johnson. And, and what you know by interacting with them is that they are highly qualified, you know, and extremely, extremely knowledgeable individuals. And I think that uh, they're putting the best of their tools you know, to try to provide government with appropriate advice. But what becomes very clear, and 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 if you read any of the original papers on which uh, the advice to government was based, uh, you know, we all recognize, like epidemiology, like any of these extremely complex branches of science, you know, requires making enormous assumptions on the inputs that you put into your models. And... Um, and I feel comfortable speaking about this because it's the same thing that I do in my own discipline. You know, it, when I put an incredibly complex model that is there to model a system that has a very significant number of variables, and many of those variables, you know, have an enormous impact on the outcome. You might run sensitivity analysis, you might do all these different things, but there are going to be significant uncertainties. And in the particular, in this particular case, you know, these models uh, have enormous uncertainties on the way in which, you know, the virus is transmitted on what is the starting point, you know, of the pandemic, you know, all these different things that when you put them in the mathematics can give you very, very, very significantly uh, different results. So I think that at the beginning, the data that was available, the information that was available uh, allowed to make certain projections and those projections, you know, were uh, fed to government, you know, and government had to make decisions on that basis. Now, what what happens is that, as you know, this is not pure science and pure mathematics. It's mixed with social aspects. And there is obviously a significant aspect in our society, which is the tolerance to risk, you know, the tolerance to death, you know, the tolerance to failure. And uh, and what what ends up happening is that inevitably as a government you have to balance the capacity of the people to tolerate what is going on you know with your projections and your mathematics and your assumptions and i think at the beginning you know government stuck you know to the mathematical projections and was very clear about a certain path but as the tolerance of society start diminishing and the numbers kept increasing and people became increasingly anxious, you know, of uh, what was going on and what their safety was going to be. You know, the risk, you know, of having problems with the national health services and all these things came up. Then the government had to listen to the people. And I think at that point, science might take a second space and um, and you have to start, you know, governing on the basis of what you believe is what people are capable of tolerating. And uh, and I do think that that was at the core of a very drastic change in the policies of government that effectively brought us to a, to a very stringent lockdown. Now, clearly what happens next, again, is as time passes and the numbers start decaying, you're 
capacity to accept um you know the the consequences of the pandemic starts increasing and your tolerance to the economic weaknesses that are being embedded you know to not being able to receive a salary you know to all these different things that um that represent significant social pressures starts shifting and then the pressure goes back to government to start opening things up and uh, and once again the government has to balance one thing with the other one now clearly you know by the time we got to june the amount of data that populated the models now was much 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 higher and therefore their precision or their robustness was much more significant and um and decisions you know were made in uh in 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 probably a manner that actually was consistent with the model predictions so in many ways i think it's been a process and a process in which we have seen that crash you know between social pressures and the cold science you know that comes with mathematical models and uh, and a government that has had to make decisions uh to privilege one or the other one on the basis of the status at that specific moment Boris Johnson I don't know if it's fair to say he nearly died but he was gravely ill and that must have had a strong impact on the on the psyche and the risk this risk toleration um, begins to decrease quite rapidly in the UK certainly connected with that I mean this happened in Brazil as well I'm not sure if you're going to see a similar effect with Bolsonaro being ill um, but you know the impact of I mean, even in the United States, I think the impact of Boris Johnson being in the hospital was was measurable, was palpable. Yeah, no, I think I think that that uh, that clearly, uh, you know, for the prime minister to be absent for such a significant period of time, you know, despite that they were not very forthcoming, you know, with the details of his health condition, uh, you know, it is clearly a. Uh, evidence that that um his health was not uh, uh you know he was very weak uh in in health and uh, so so i think it's fair to say that that he probably was uh suffering from very very severe illness and um now one of the things that i found really very interesting about about the united kingdom is that the united kingdom remains a country with a, a very strong civil service you know and a very 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 strong government set of institutions and uh, and i think it was remarkable to see how um all the lieutenants you know of the prime minister took turns into maintaining communication with government uh, sorry with people and uh and in maintaining a sense of control and i think that was something that i believe was very very important you know to keep the process going and to keep the continuity of the strategy of the government the fact that despite the absence of the prime minister you know government as an institution remained very solid and re- and remained capable of maintaining you know a very rigorous path you know that was not disrupted by the absence of uh, of Boris Johnson and while people were very significantly emotionally affected by the fact that he was absent it was clear that government was still functioning and i think that was a very very important um sort of message that went you know from the cabinet uh you know to the people and i think it was it it served uh a important process of guaranteeing that the policies were going to be maintained carefully listening to COVID calls and I'm talking with Jose Torero today about COVID-19 in the UK and also about fire protection and engineering in the wake of the pandemic. Please do get your questions in to YouTube live or put them up on Twitter just tag at US of disasters. So Jose, let's pivot a little bit and talk about um, engineering and uh, we would need a much longer session to get the full background from you of how you've, you know, your career um, 
but but I do I would like to know um, maybe if you could walk us through a little bit some of the the questions that have been most persistent for you over time, the kinds of questions as an engineer that continue um, to keep you excited to go. Well, at this point, you can't go back in the lab, but to go to the lab, um, either physically or again or or virtually. What really excites you intellectually as an engineer? Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, you know this pandemic has been quite interesting as an engineer because I think in in, in many ways what what always motivated me, uh, you know, as as an engineer to go to work every day is the fact that we actually solve real problems. And uh, and those problems affect, you know, the well-being of people. And, uh, and, and, and as such, uh, you know, you feel motivated because you go to work to try to make sure that people have a, best, a better chance in life. And, uh, and I think the pandemic has been really quite interesting because it forces you, you know, to revisit in a much more rigorous way and a much more blatant way, the relationship that people have with their own infrastructure. You know, we we always say that, you know, we build buildings so that people live in them, you know, and, and therefore we have to build them in a way such that those buildings guarantee the well-being of people. And, and it's always been a good-to-have thing. Oh, yes, you know, I'm going to do a proper architecture. I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that in such a way that the building is safe, you know, that the building is uh, uh, is appropriate. You know, if I have a physical impediment that I can actually use the building correctly and the building services me in an appropriate way. So all these things have been a good to have. What the pandemic has revealed is a much more... Uh, extreme version of the same thing because it's not anymore a good to have but it's a must have so uh, i presume you might have heard that for example there was a high death incidence among bus drivers in london uh you know during the pandemic and and while there's been many questions of why that is the case it forced us to revisit the way in which we use buses and um, because obviously then the bus as a, as a critical means of public transport uh, is going to be required to have people coming in and coming out. And the question is to what extent the behavior of individuals actually has an impact on the way in which the virus can be transmitted you know, within the bus. And, uh, and what kind of countermeasures can you put in place you know, to try uh, to make sure that the level of exposure that people within the bus are suffering gets minimized. Now, you might think that for a fire engineer, that is something that is really, really, really far away. But if you think about it, you know, part of my work has been smoke management and therefore the same types of flows that you deal with when you have a fire are the kinds of flows that you're analyzing when you're dealing with a bus. You know, when you're talking about smoke and soot particles, uh, little carbon particles flying, they're pretty much the same size as the aerosols that transmit, you know, the virus. So all of a sudden you find yourself using your skills, you know, and your knowledge in a space that effectively you never thought you were ever going to use your skills, which is, you know, to be honest, is exciting because you see the utility of what you're doing and how it extends beyond your area of expertise. But also it's exciting because now you're addressing a must-have. You know, you're not anymore addressing uh, it would be nice to have this and that, but it's something that now it becomes, you know, absolutely critical that we understand properly. So, so I think being able to reinvent yourself to try to deal with these must-haves has been a very exciting um aspect of this whole period of, of, of time and uh, and and I think in many ways the difficulties associated to this you know have this sort of silver lining which is invigorating because you all of a sudden realize that there is value to your knowledge the these must-haves are, are I mean that's just a, a really remarkable way to, to put it specifically for a person like you who you often do work design work and testing work that goes into building environments that people are never aware there's sort of passive fire control that makes their world safe and then most people don't even think about it so 
that's work that happens long before something that we hope never happens, like a fire in a building. Or you do forensic work and analysis after. But it must be interesting to find your yourself in the in the midst of this. I, I hadn't thought about this connection of the droplets um, in the air and trying to model that with your smoke work. It's obvious now that I that I think of it. So have you been called on to advise and work um either in public or in private settings already to, to address these kind of concerns. The bus is, is a good example, but we've got mm-hmm. classrooms and many other sites that we're going to have to do this kind of modeling for in the coming months, yeah? Yeah, so, so it, the, you know, the, the case with the buses is a case where um, uh, some of my colleagues in the department were involved that now has led you know, to us trying to put this project together to try to develop this further. So I hope... That I'm going to be directly involved. Uh, I've been directly involved in developing the project now, and uh, but it it stemmed, you know, from looking at the work that other others were doing, where very rapidly they realized that they were hitting a wall, you know, where they didn't really understand uh, or had enough data to be able to input into their models correctly. So there were people doing fluid mechanics that they were trying to model the things and they didn't really have the necessary data and uh, and the data was quite interesting because it was one was the interaction between these weak flows and these droplets you know which is as as i say a space in which i can contribute but then there's also the other aspect which is the behavioral aspect you know the the moment that you put a screen the way in which you design the screen makes people behave in a different way which again brings the expertise that I have in in looking into the behavior of people in emergencies. You know, because in many ways, the way in which we enter a bus now with our masks and uh, in a situation in which we're required to do social distance, psychologically is very similar to the type of conscious decisions that you're making when you're in an emergency situation. So also from a behavioral perspective, you know, it is extremely interesting to see, you know, how the way in which people now walk in and out of the bus affects the flow fields, you know, within the bus. So, so yes, so basically what we're doing is expanding this original project that effectively showed that we didn't have the data, both at the behavioral side and at the physical side. And now we're beginning to put a much bigger project so that we are going to be looking into, you know, different environments, you know, from waiting rooms in hospitals, metro stations, trains, buses, and so forth, to see if we can uh, create the data that is necessary for people to be able to model these things correctly. When I talked to you um, last, a little bit earlier in the pandemic, you were uh, very concerned about uh, hospitals and fire in hospitals. And it's a space, I think, where a lot of people sort of expect oh well surely schools and hospitals you know fire safety has been worked out in those places and maybe it has and maybe it hasn't depending on on the country but we're exceeding um in icus the normal uh capacity you can see it country by country state by state in the united states what are the hazards from a fire protection perspective as you begin to fill up a hospital and go with much higher numbers than you usually would see. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the interesting things is, is that people do not recognize how managed a hospital is when it comes to fire safety. And obviously, the, the, the reason is that not only you have uh, extremely complex and, complex and sometimes hazardous equipment, you know, in, in hospitals, many times unique unique equipment that needs to be very heavily protected. But also, your patients are bedridden, so the possibilities of evacuating people are very limited. And therefore, the, the management of fire safety within a hospital is a perfectly well-orchestrated process that is extremely linked to the way in which the hospital operates. So the moment that you start reconfiguring the hospital and operating it in a different way, you are effectively dismantling this very well orchestrated process. And examples we've had many, I mean, you alluded, alluded to, the, to the fact that the, 
the capacity of the hospitals have been, has been increased in many cases in a very significant way, which clearly poses a significant challenge when it comes to managing these people in the event of a, of, of, of a fire. But also, if you look at, for example, respirators and so forth, the introduction of many more environments with high oxygen concentration, again, represents a whole new hazard that is coming into the hospital space. And um, and and in many cases, I mean, uh, the majority of hospitals have undergone, you know, risk assessments to try to make sure that the changes are implemented appropriately. But the reality is that here we run into another very interesting social problem is our capacity to have sufficiently competent people making this kind of very complex decisions. So a routine risk assessment that we have a full capacity to deliver is not the type of risk assessment that you might need in a situation where you have completely altered the fire safety strategy of a hospital. In that case, you're going to require an individual with a much higher level of competency you know, much deeper understanding of the changes that are going to be made and a much more rigorous analysis in a, in a period where things are changing faster than the period that you need to be able to analyze them correctly. So, so effectively, uh, I think in many cases, we have conformed ourselves with this idea that we have done our job. We checked the boxes, we got the, the, the fire risk assessment, you know, we got it through, everything must be fine. You know, but the reality is that that uh, I think um, we do have to be extremely careful because under the circumstances, we might end up having uh, a very significant problem. And I think particularly now, I think as we're going back online, I think anybody that has worked in, in the space of safety, you know, recognizes that when, when you've reconfigured something, in many cases, when you've gone to um, a, a position in which you've lowered the activity of a space, going back to normal, you know, effectively brings a whole set of hazards that need to be managed in a careful way. So I, I, I want to make sure that people recognize that you know going back to normal uh, is something that we have to do in a very managed way, and we have to be very, very careful you know, not to run ourselves into trouble for not paying sufficient attention. So that's thinking about spaces like hospitals that have seen surges. And as you said, improvisations, which we hope are in the hands of competent uh, people. What about the inverse of that? When we now have all of these empty spaces or spaces that have been empty for months now with very light use, uh, like many schools, um, you know, restaurants, many uh, workplaces. What are the fire risk concerns that you have in that sort of a situation where some space has been lightly used and now comes back into greater use? Yeah, I mean, it's very, very problematic. And I, I think it's, it's, it's extremely simple. No, I mean, think, think about it with the most simplistic of examples. So if you have your house and you have a smoke detector and the smoke detector operates on a battery, then you leave your house for eight months, the battery dies, then you come back home and, and you have a fire, and you don't recognize you don't have the battery. So what you're supposed to do is come back, you know, revisit, you know, all your safety precautions, make sure that everything is back to normal, and then start moving back into the process of reintegrating the, you know, the space into its operation. But uh, so I think, I think we have to be extremely careful. Uh, some of the most significant industrial uh, tragedies have happened, you know, right after periods of, uh, you know, where the system has been shut down and when it's coming back to operation, because we miss, you know, some of the changes that happen, you know, when the system gets stopped. And uh, so it, it really, really requires a very careful and detailed analysis before you start bringing things up to, uh, you know, up, up, up to speed as they were before. You know that as a historian, I get very excited about the history of these kinds of concerns because what you're really pointing to is this evolution of what we call safety as a very highly contextual and highly managed and expert-driven 
set of circumstances. We've just, you've just given two great examples of spaces that need to have a certain number of people there, shouldn't be fewer, and a certain number of people who should be there and it shouldn't be more. And in both cases, they bring their own, they bring their own threats. I guess a deeper question I have here is about standard making in the midst of a pandemic. Now, most disasters as such are pretty temporarily limited. This one is long. This is moving slowly. Are, is it possible to build standards? I guess the metaphor that's often used is building the airplane while you're flying it. Um, but can we can we build um, material safety standards, um, fire safety standards, literally in the midst of the pandemic? Do you see that kind of work going on, or the standards making regime is too slow? So we'll just improvise and figure out later if it if it worked well. No, a, stand, a standardized solution, by definition, is a solution uh, that is proven. And it's proven so much that you can create a standard set of rules that describes that solution effectively. So it has to be proven. Now, when you have a situation like this that is long, but long and evolving constantly, uh, this is where you have to rely on professional competency. So you don't have the capacity to reinvent your standards. You don't have the capacity to prove them right and then be able to implement. You know, so, so this is where professionals have to use their skills you know, to be able to supplement the absence of standards in a way such that they can deliver the same you know, or better level of safety. And, uh, and I think this is, to me, one of the most interesting and fascinating challenges that we're facing today is that you know we live in a very wealthy society in you know in the Western world and uh, and we've had a period of several decades of increasing wealth and comfort and uh, and that has resulted in us neglecting you know competency and um, and neglecting competency in and supplement or substituting it by standards and rules that seem to uh, work quite well for this consistently growing, you know, society. Then all of a sudden, you know, we have this massive shift. And this is a massive shift that now is going to stay for a very significant period of time. And therefore, the cumulative risk, you know, with the duration of the pandemic keeps increasing. And, uh, and it brings us into a position where we need extremely competent people. But as a society, we have rejected that. You know, we have moved away from that. We have substituted competency by standardization. And, uh, and now that we need it, I think we're finding ourselves in a very interesting situation because we do not have necessarily the supply of competent people that we need with, to deal with this, this situation. And, uh, and, and that is a really, really important challenge that I'm not 100% sure how we're going to address. Let's turn to the Grenfell fire inquiry. And I think one of the really fascinating, I mean, all of your work with that has been crucial and civic minded and, and I think very important. Um, and you found yourself once again in the, in the middle of one of the critical socio-technical moments in a society. But the investigation's ongoing and now there's a pandemic happening. It's, a, again, a sort of a collision of things that I hadn't really thought much about. But the finishing that Grenfell inquiry expeditiously is really crucial from a technical perspective, but also from a political perspective. Are you able to make progress at this time or has the work stopped entirely? Well, I mean, the, the, the work has not stopped entirely at our end. I mean, I think we have had to continue working uh, in as much as it was possible. But uh, the, the public inquiry is a very sensitive uh, process uh, in which many of the, the, uh, the testifying witnesses are under enormous amount of pressure and stress. So a support structure is necessary, you know, to make sure that they are given the opportunity to express, you know, their position in, 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 the, in the best of conditions. Now, it was deemed that that support structure was not uh, possible uh, online, and therefore the public inquiry had to stop 
and uh, and it has only resumed uh, a week ago. And uh, clearly, a lot of our work depends on the testimonies, and therefore, a lot of our work has uh, slowed down. And uh, some of the tests that we had to do have been slowed down because the laboratories were closed. And, uh, and we're slowly beginning to resume this this work. So clearly, um, you know, things have not progressed at the speed that we would, would have wished uh, they progressed. You know, nevertheless, there has been some level of uh, of progress at uh, at all levels. And um, and and now, why is this quite critical? Um, if if you look at uh, what is going on right now in the United Kingdom, um, the government has announced two um, very clear strategies. On the one hand, uh, there's going to be significant incentives for the construction industry, uh, you know, to uh, be rebooted so that it can be a pump for the economy. And so we are going to see very significant investment in in infrastructure, in housing, in in all these things, and um, and in parallel, uh, the government is providing brand new legislation in regards to safety. So it is it is quite interesting to find yourself in a space where we are accelerating uh, purposely and incentivizing construction. You know, we are making very, very strong statements that we're going to completely reform the way in which we deal with safety. While we are in the middle of trying to understand one of the most significant failures, you know, in the post-Second World War history of the United Kingdom. So um, it's one of those very strange situations in which you have still not understood what are your problems, but nevertheless, you have to run extremely fast. So I think... Uh, you know, it is a very challenging moment, and uh, our hopes are that we are going to be able to resume very rapidly our work in the in in the public inquiry, so that we can start delivering the answers that are necessary to make sure that those safety provisions come into all the construction that is going to be promoted by government. Are there specific uh, design failures or firefighting? technique failures demonstrated in Grenfell that you think are going to be locked into place in this sort of era of new construction? I, again, you, you've revealed something really important here, which is that here you have this critical investigation happening, which has implications for the built environment of the UK and other countries. Um, and then you also have the economic faltering. And so while you're desperately trying to learn something over here, the countervailing pressure to build is over here. I mean, it takes me back to the days after the World Trade Center collapse. I mean, they couldn't get those new buildings up fast enough. Meanwhile, the pace of the crucial investigation was five, six years to actually find out why those buildings collapsed. So yeah, and, are there specific things you're, you're worried about? It's more in a general sense. Well, I mean, I think I think that... Uh, that uh, clearly, the, the the parallel with the World Trade Center is is very real, and um, and and I think in after in the aftermath of World Trade Center, there was also a need to incentivize the economy, and therefore push for construction. Uh, I I almost think that uh, the level at which those incentives are going to have to come in this time has no precedent. And, uh, and and therefore, we're going to see a much faster increase, which effectively, again, you know, creates uh, a much more significant risk. Now, in regards to, to, to Grenfell, you know, clearly, if you read the report of phase one, you can see many of the deficiencies uh, already expressed in black and white by the chairman, uh, you know, of the public inquiry. And... Uh, and you know the the purpose of phase two was to provide the answers. So the questions were all raised in phase one, and uh, and they concern you know firefighting operations, they concern testing regimes, you know they concern you know design and building practices, and fundamentally they concern competency 
and uh, and the way in which we assess competency. So all of those things were the questions that were raised in the phase one report. And uh, and the process of the phase two, uh, you know, which is the one we're going right now, uh, is intended to provide answers to those questions. So in the absence of those answers, uh, it is it is difficult to see how we're going to match, you know, the pressures of the economic recovery and the importance that construction has in that process, you know, with the will of government to guarantee, you know, the ultimate safety of buildings. So the two things, it's difficult to see how you're going to be able to do both without having answered all the questions that were put forward in the phase one report of the public inquiry. So for people who may not be um, too familiar with fire protection engineering, can you give us an example maybe of the kind of research that has been done uh, to support the knowledge base in the Grenfell investigation? Are these um, digital models that uh, where you model the fire through a system? Are these actually um, physical uh, experiments that you do in a, in a a physical testing site, a, a fire testing site. People might be yes. as familiar with this, and I think it's, it's, it's all of the above. It's crucial to get a handle on it because, again, like, yeah, where science right now is not operating by any norms um, of how we usually get it get it done, in, in part because we can't get into our labs, as you said. Yeah. Um, earlier. I mean, I think, yeah. I think, I think the, the the way you should look at this is, um, you know, one of the main reasons why Grantful happened, you know, was because. Uh, we allowed the complexity of the construction systems to creep on us to the point that we became incapable of assessing the fire performance of these very complex systems. You know, our mathematical models, you know, were too coarse, too uncertain, too imprecise to be able to predict what the performance of the systems were. And, uh, and our experimental work, our testing, Again, you know, was not well focused, was not precise enough, didn't have the right measurements. There were all sorts of things. So the tests were incapable of delivering the information that we needed to be able to feed it into our models so our models could actually do a better job. So effectively, we created systems that were so complex that we had no tools to predict performance. So in a nutshell, you know, that's at the core, you know, of this type of failures. Okay, so effectively, what the process that has been happening is that we are reinventing the way in which we test. So new experiments have been done, new tests have been performed, new measurements have been made, new observations, you know, have been developed, and those are being fed into our models to try to improve them, to make them better, to have the appropriate input parameters and all the different things so that the models work better. Okay, that's the process that is going now, obviously with the pandemic, you know, with labs being closed, people not being able to work together and so forth. What we have is a situation by which this progress that we were trying to implement so that we could understand these complex systems better has been slowed down you know, almost to a point in many cases of being halted. So effectively, you know, we are in a path to understand the complexity of our systems and uh, and we have not been able to get to where we wanted to be at this point. Now, clearly, governments have to make decisions. And for example, in the United Kingdom, in the meantime, uh, government has made decisions of banning all sorts of materials which is having a very negative impact on different industries like the timber industry, for example, you know, because in the absence of the knowledge, they have no choice. So the problem is that while technically speaking, from a safety perspective, they might have no choice from an economic perspective, you know, bringing a whole industry to its needs at the moment where you need to revitalize the industry is not necessarily you know, the, the desired path. So we are running into this massive conflict, 
you know, on the one hand, slowing things down because we don't have the capacity to respond to the right questions. And on the other hand, uh, you know, slowing the economic recovery because we are putting rules that effectively bring certain industries to their knees. Let me uh, ask you just a little bit more sort of just kind of a personal question about you and your and and the way you do your work and experiment. I got the chance to see your lab in Australia a few years ago. And when you took me there, there was a electricity in the in the place, very buzzing the students who were working and your engagement with many different things that were happening there. I've asked this of other scientists in these last few months. And, and so I want to put this question to you. What has it meant to, to not be able to physically go into the lab? I mean, there's so much modeling work that happens behind the computer screen with fire protection. I know. Um, but it, it must've been difficult in these months not to get back into the lab. And you have students who rely on that space as well, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that uh, I mean, I have to say that it's been a very difficult period. I think anybody who is an experimentalist and and acquires his knowledge through experimentation, you know, will tell you that uh, you almost have to see it to be able to understand it. And uh, so, not having the capacity to see things, you know, is is created a, a very uh, very big difficulty. Now, not only that, but also, uh, you know, we work, you know, with our students, which are generally brilliant people that through discussion, arguments, sometimes even fights, you know, you come, you know, to very interesting conclusions and you end up learning, you know, uh, as much from your students as they learn from you. And, uh, and I think not being able to have those interactions uh, has also been very difficult because, I mean, we all recognize that we can communicate, you know, through virtual means, but um, uh, but there are limits to that, and uh, and I think sometimes, uh, y you know, a discussion that is crossing a room, you know, between six or seven people where ideas are being thrown, you know, at each other, uh, is very difficult to reproduce in uh, in by means of uh, virtual communication. So. So I think in many ways it's been very disruptive, and uh, and 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 I think I, I'm pretty sure that many people will think like me that uh, we're just you know desperately waiting for the moment where we're you know we're going to be able to open those doors again. But do you think this is going to change engineering education? I mean, it, is this some kind of a a turning point, perhaps? I mean, a risk-averse experimentalist. Probably when you go back to the lab, won't it be in the back of your mind? I might have to leave the lab again. I mean, this this pandemic has got people thinking about the maybe new cyclical nature of the coronavirus as something we're going to have to grapple with on an ongoing basis. Yeah, I mean, I think I think clearly, you know, everybody talks about the new normal, and uh, and the reality is that we have to accept that we are going to be operating in probably different. Uh, conditions than the ones that we were operating, but nevertheless we cannot forget what our objectives are, and uh, and I think to me that is key. Is like we got caught by surprise, and while many people have been, you know, predicting this happening, I don't think anybody really internalized completely what was going to happen. So we got caught by surprise. We've coped with it. You know, we are moving to a period where we can think better what to do next. And I really think we have to reinvent our world in a way such that we can cope with the cyclic challenges and at the same time deliver what we need to deliver. So, so I think that aiming at understanding what what is a better new normal, you know, to me, is something that I think is of fundamental importance, you know, for all of us. And you know, for years and years, you know, we have been talking about online teaching and how engineering education had to be transformed like all higher education. The reality is that I think we've been launched into this unwanted experiment. And um, and I will be very, very, very surprised uh, if the outcome is that we accept that online learning, you know, becomes the new normal. I think, if anything, I think we have recognized the virtues of seeing each other and being able to communicate as human beings, 
and um and and i think people have recognized that in the space of learning uh you know the the actual presence you know it is fundamental to that experience that enriches you know the way in which we transfer knowledge from generation to generation I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls and my guest today, Jose Torero, talking about pandemic in the UK and, and also talked about the Grenfell fire inquiry and engineering in the time of the pandemic. Um, you probably picked up on the point that there really isn't any topic that uh, Jose can't bring some real important critical uh, lens to. And I, with that, I want to switch to one final topic since we are almost up on time. But, you know, um, we published a chapter together this spring. Uh, and uh, it was good to see that come out, and it was about um, timber skyscrapers and, and about, in a broader sense, about sort of environmental considerations um, in, this, in this moment of climate change and climate adaptation and the, the timber high-rise being one of the sort of interesting moments in that, in that story. But I want to see what, what's been on your mind in terms of environment and engineering in this time. It's been really fascinating articles and things I've been watching about what people are learning about biodiversity right now. Uh, obviously, nobody would like to see a pandemic um, as, a, as an experiment, but at the same time, we've learned important things about greenhouse gas emissions and the fact that they can be reduced. Um, have, have some of those environmental um, impacts of the pandemic stuck with you or excited your interest? Yeah, I mean, I think I think clearly, I mean, as you say, it's hard to see the situation as an experiment. But the reality is that we will be doing a disservice to ourselves if we didn't actually take advantage of the situation. And I really think that, um, that it's become very clear that these radical changes to our lifestyle have enabled us to create data points in numerous aspects that otherwise we have never been able to create. And so I think we've learned a lot, and I do hope that uh, that there will be a significant investment in trying to capitalize on this information because uh, we will be doing a massive disservice to ourselves if we didn't really take advantage of the fact that we were launched into this space. Uh, you know that is very different. You know to what our lives used to be. You know in January of this year. So, so I think that um, yeah, from an environmental perspective, I mean this is this is an absolutely uh, critical set of data because our consumption habits have changed dramatically. So urban waste management has changed dramatically. You know all these different things that have been the sources of our concerns in the in regards to the environment have actually changed dramatically. So in many ways, these are data points that enable us to see, you know, what kinds of changes we can implement and what kind of consequences they can have on our environment. And as I say, I do hope, you know, we take full advantage of this because it is, it is, you know, as hard as it is, it is our responsibility to take advantage of this information. Um, by my Figuring on the calendar, it seemed that you'll finish the Grenfell inquiry right about the time to get drafted into the COVID-19 inquiry. <laughs> I imagine you, it, <laughs> we better make sure that this conversation we had today doesn't get into the hands of policymakers. But, but seriously, the scale of the inquiry at national levels, and I suppose at an international level of, of the many different things to be learned from the pandemic is going to be really something, isn't it? I mean, it's going to be the disaster investigation of our lifetimes. Absolutely. I mean, and and I think, you know, we owe it to ourselves to take advantage of the situation because, you know, as I say, and as hard as it is, you know, this, these are data points that uh, it is our responsibility to take the most advantage of. Well, I've kept you up very late. Thank you, Jose, for making time for COVID calls. Really great discussion. And um, I reserve the right to bring you back later in the fall, particularly as some of these, uh, this part of our discussion is really amazing as you were talking about how spaces, which have been used in one way, are going to be used in another, and people coming back into schools and these kinds of things. It'll be good to get an update from you. So I know you're keeping busy. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much. It's really, really a pleasure. And uh, anytime, just let me know. Okay. Everybody, COVID Calls comes to you live 
Monday through Friday, 5 p.m. Eastern Time, and we will see you tomorrow. Stay healthy. Bye, Jose. Thanks. Bye-bye.